chapter 16, verse 19, through chapter 17, verse 10. Verses 19 through 21. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Perquette notes, Our Savior in this parabolical history of dives and Lazarus instructs us concerning the right use of riches, which is to capacitate us to do good to others, declaring that in the life to come, the pious poor man shall be eternally happy, while the unmerciful rich man shall be intolerably miserable. Here observe one, the different state and condition of good and bad men in the other world, from what they are in this. Here the wicked prosper, grow rich and great, and the good and virtuous are in calamity, suffer poverty and distress, which has staggered many men, yea, the best of men, in the belief of a divine providence. Observe, too, that our Savior did not censure the rich men for being rich, but for being sensual, not for wearing costly apparel and keeping a plentiful table, which, if managed according to men's qualities and estates, is a commendable virtue but his sensuality and luxury, and forgetting to feed the hungry with the surplicities of his table, these are the things for which he censured. From whence we may learn that pride and luxury, intemperance and sensuality, are such abuses of worldly riches as worldly men are very prone and incident to. Rich men too often make their back and their belly their god, sacrificing and devoting all they have to the service of those idols. Observe 3 that a poor and mean condition is the lot of many good men, nay, perhaps the most in this world, that a man may be poor and miserable in this world, and yet be very dear to God. The grace of sanctification is sometimes bestowed most eminently where the gifts of providence have been dispensed most sparingly. Consequently, from the present state of men in this world, we can make no judgment of their future condition in the world to come. Verses 22 and 23. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, that our Savior represents all men, both good and bad, passing immediately out of this life into a state of happiness or misery. Lazarus died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Thence note, one, that the souls of men survive in sensibility and activity after the dissolution of their bodies, and do not sleep with the body till the day of the resurrection. Two, that all holy souls, and among the rest the godly poor, are instantly, after death, conveyed by angels to their place of rest and blessedness. The rich man also died. This is added to let us know that riches, for all man's confidence in them, will not deliver from death. The rich man might be surfeited by faring deliciously every day, while Lazarus was famished and was buried. Here is no mention of Lazarus' burial. Probably he had none, but was flung out of the way into some hole or pit, or if he had a burial, a very mean one, which is passed over in silence. All the advantage which a rich man has by a great estate after he is dead is only to have a pompous funeral 
which yet signifies nothing to him, because he's not sensible of it. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, etc. He feels at once both his own misery and sensibly perceives Lazarus' happiness. Thence note that the souls of wicked men, while their bodies lie in the grave, are in the state of the greatest misery, which is aggravated by the sense they have at the same time of the saint's happiness. For probably the blessed shall see the torments of the damned, and the damned probably shall see the glory of the blessed. Verse 24. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. The place where the rich man suffers, it is in hell. The souls of wicked men, when they leave their bodies, do certainly go into a place of torment, which is not only beyond expression, but our apprehension also. I had not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive those dreadful things which God hath prepared for them that aid him. Observe, too, the sin for which he suffers. It is the sin of unmercifulness. Thence learn that uncharitableness and unmercifulness to the poor is a very great sin, and such a sin that alone and without any other guilt is sufficient to ruin a man forever. There is found in this sin great impiety towards God and great inhumanity towards our own nature. Observe 3. The nature and quality of his suffering. They are exquisitely painful and void of the least degree of comfort. Not a drop of water is granted to cool an inflamed tongue. Learn hence that the least refreshments are impatiently desired by the damned souls in hell, but righteously denied and withheld from them. A drop of water was desired but not granted. No cup of water, no bowls of wine in hell. There is but one full cup in hell, and that is the cup of God's wrath, without any mixture of mercy or pity. That throat will be forever parched with thirst then, which is drenched and drowned with excess now. The song of the drunkard here will be turned into howlings and lamentations there. Verse 25 But Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Burkett notes, Observe 1. The title given to the rich man by Father Abraham, Son. He did not revile him, though a very bad man. If we revile the good, we are unjust. They deserve it not. If we revile the bad, we are unwise and shall get nothing by it. A wise man knows not where it is to give bad language. Observe, too, the admonition given. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, thy good things in which thou placed all thy happiness, thy good things in which thou looked upon thyself as the proprietor and not the dispenser of. Now remember what thou hadst and what thou abused. Learn hence that the outward blessings which are afforded to the wicked men on earth will be sadly remembered in hell. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things. Two, that no man ought to measure his happiness hereafter by his temporal felicity here. We may receive our good things here and yet be tormented hereafter. Three, that no man ought to be excessively troubled if he meets with hardship here, because those for whom God designs good things hereafter may have their evil things here. Son, thou hadst thy good things, 
and also Lazarus' evil things. For the word remember implies that human souls in their state of separation do exercise memory, thought, and reflection on the past occurrences and actions of their lives, and consequently that they do not sleep or fall into a state of insensibility and inactivity at death till the resurrection. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Burkett notes, The meaning is that there neither is nor can be any commerce or intercourse betwixt glorified saints and damned sinners. But the state of the souls at death is unalterably fixed and stated. Learn that the miserable condition of damned souls in the next world and the blessed condition of the glorified souls is unchangeably and unalterably such. The power of God is irresistible, and the will of God is invariable. The oath of God is immutable. I have sworn that they shall never enter into my rest. Verses 27 and 28. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldst sendest him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Burkett notes, Here the rich man is represented as retaining even in hell some tenderness for his relations on earth. Yet others think that the kindness intended was rather to himself than to his relations, fearing that their sinning by his example should be an aggravation of his own torments. Note thence that the presence of sinful relations and companions in hell may be supposed to make a considerable addition to the miseries of the damned. The sight of those whom they have sinned with is a fresh revival of their own guilt. All the circumstances of their past and profligate lives are upon this occasion continually in their remembrance. Note farther, this miserable wrench is convinced that he could not get out of hell, therefore desires that no friend of his might come in. He knew well enough that if they were once there, they would come out no more. Indeed, God will at the great day send forth his writ to the graves to bring out bodies of the wicked that are shut up there, and will send out his writ to hell to bring forth the spirits that are shut up in there. But it is in order to this that both soul and body together may receive an eternal sentence for an everlasting imprisonment with the devil and his angels, and there will be no more opening forever. Verse 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Burkett notes, That is, they have the inspired writing of Moses and the prophets, which sufficiently declare the mind and will of God to mankind, and therefore it is unreasonable to expect any further revelation. Learn thence that a standing revelation of God is evidence sufficient for divine things. It is a more certain way of conveyance and more secured from imposture. Secondly, that there is a sufficient evidence that Moses and the prophets, or the writings of the Holy Scripture, are of divine authority, and therefore to be read and heard, to be believed and assented to. They have Moses, etc. Verse 30. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Burkett notes, as if he had said, they have always had Moses and the prophets in their hands, but yet their hearts remain impenitent. But if a special messenger be sent to them from the dead, this will not fail to awaken them and bring them to repentance. 
Learn hence how prone we are to dislike God's methods and means, which he has appointed for reclaiming us from our sins, and imagine some methods of our own would be more successful. The scriptures read, the word preached, the sacraments administered. These are the ordinary means by which the wisdom of God is appointed for men's conviction. And if we think a messenger from the dead would be a more conductible means, the next verse will confute us and thoroughly satisfy us that whom the scripture convinces not, probably nothing will. For thus it follows. Verse 31. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Burkett notes, A very awakening text this is, which speaks dreadfully to persons sitting all their days under the ministry of the gospel, and yet find not their understanding enlightened, their judgments convinced, their wills subdued, and their lives reformed by it. Where it is possible for such persons to see one come from the dead, yea, from the damned, with the flames of hell about his ears, wringing his hands and gnashing his teeth, bewailing his misery, and beseeching them to take warning by his example, and in time to acquaint themselves with God and be at peace. All this would have no farther effect upon them than to move their passions a little for the present, while the dreadful sound is in their ears. The ordinance of God, and not his providences, are the instituted and appointed means for men's conversion and salvation. Note then, one, that no vision or apparitions, no revelations concerning eternal rewards and punishments, are to be expected from the other world, in order to men's conversion and salvation. Note, too, that the word of God dispensed to us, and the ordinary means of grace enjoyed by us, are more conductible and effectual means to persuade men to repentance than if one should arise from the dead and preach unto us. A messenger from the dead cannot bring with him either a more necessary doctrine or a more certain and infallible doctrine, nor bring with him better arguments for our conviction than what the scriptures do propound for our consideration. Nor can we expect a greater cooperation of the Holy Spirit or a greater concurrence of divine power to render a message from the dead more effectual than doth ordinarily attend the ministry of the word. Henceforward, then, let us not wonder if when a drunkard drops down dead upon the spot, the companions say one to another, Drink on, if sinners daily tumble one another into the grave without considering the operation of God's hand. This, to those that consider this text, will not seem strange. For if they hear not Moses and the prophet, neither will they be converted. Though hundreds of sinners before their eyes drop down dead, nay, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Then he said unto the disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Burkett notes, Two things are here observable. One, the necessity of scandalous offenses. It must needs be that offenses come. If we consider men's corruptions, Satan's malice, God's permission, and just judgment. Observe, too, the misery and mischief which comes by these scandals. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Woe to such as give the scandal. This is the woe of one denouncing. And woe to such as stumble at offenses given. This the woe of one lamenting. From the whole, note one, 
that scandals or offensive actions in the Church of Christ will certainly happen and frequently fall out among those that profess religion and the name of Christ. It is impossible but that offenses will come. Secondly, that scandalous and offensive actions from such as profess religion and the name of Christ are baneful and fatal stumbling blocks to wicked and worldly men. Thirdly, that the offenses which the wicked men take at the falls of the professors of religion for the hardening of themselves and their wicked and sinful practices is matter of just and great lamentation. Woe unto the world because of the offenses. Matthew 18.7 Verses 3 and 4 Take heed to yourself. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespasses against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Burkett notes, The doctrine of forgiving an offending brother is pressed upon us with many forcible arguments in the New Testament, which speaks it to be a duty of indispensable necessity. This place is to be understood of private offenses and personal wrongs and injuries done by one man to another, which we must first reprove and then remit. And although it be said, if he repent, forgive him, that is not to be understood as if we needed not to pardon our brother if he neglects to repent and ask forgiveness. But whether he acknowledges his offense or not to us, our hearts must stand ready to forgive the wrong done to us and to pray for forgiveness on his behalf at the hands of God, laying aside all thoughts and desires of revenge in our own cause, and standing ready to any office of love and service to our offending brother. Learn hence, one, that to fall often into the same offense against our brother is a great aggravation of our offenses. If thy brother trespass against thee seven times in a day, that is, very often. Two, that is, the multiplication of offenses is a great aggravation of offenses. So the multiplying of forgiveness is a great demonstration of a godlike temper in us. He that multiplieth sin doth, like Satan, sin abundantly. And he that multiplieth pardon doth, like God, pardon abundantly. Verse 5. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. The supplicants, the apostles. 2. The person supplicated, the Lord. 3. The supplication itself, increase our faith. 4. The occasion of this supplication, our Savior urging the duty of forgiving injuries. Learn, 1. That is all grace in general, so the grace of faith in particular is weak and imperfect in the best of saints. 2. That the most eminent saints, apostles not accepted, are very sensible of the imperfection of their faith, and very importunate with God daily for the increase of it. Lord, increase our faith. 3. That faith strengthened enables the soul to the most difficult duties of obedience, and particularly helps to the practice of that hard duty of forgiving injuries. When our Savior had preached the doctrine and duty of forgiveness, the apostles instantly pray, Lord, increase our faith. Verse 6. And the Lord said, If thy had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Burkett notes, Here our Savior tells his disciples 
that if they had the smallest degree of true faith, lively, operative faith, it will enable them to perform this difficult duty of forgiving injuries and all other duties with as much facility and ease as a miraculous faith would enable them to remove mountains and transplant trees. Learn that there is nothing which may tend to the glory of God or to our own good and comfort, but may be obtained of God by a firm exercise of faith in him. All things are possible to him that believeth. Verses 7 through 10. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he is come from the field, Go and sit down to meat, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and grid thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Briquette Notes The design and scope of this parable is to show that Almighty God neither is nor can be a debtor to any of his creatures for the best service which they are able to perform unto him and that they are so far from meriting a reward of justice that they do not deserve a return of thanks. Three arguments our Savior makes use of to evidence and prove this. One, in respect to God, who is our absolute Lord and Master, and the argument lies thus. If earthly masters do not owe so much as thanks to their servant for doing that which is commanded them, how much less can God owe the reward of eternal life to his servants, when they are never able to do all that is commanded them in a perfect and sinless manner. Two, in respect to ourselves, who are as bound servants, his ransomed slaves, and consequently we are not our own men, but his who hath redeemed us. And accordingly do we owe him all that service, yea, more than all that we are able to perform unto him, and therefore whatever reward is either promised or given, it is wholly to be ascribed to the master's bounty and not to the servant's merit. 3. To merit anything by our good works is impossible, in regard of the works themselves, because all we can do, although we did all that is commanded us, is but our duty. The argument runs thus. To bound in duty belongs no reward of justice, but all the service we do perform, yea, more than we can perform to God, is bound in duty. Therefore there is due unto us no reward of justice, but of free mercy. From the whole, note one, that we are wholly the Lord's, both by a right of creation and redemption also. Two, that as his we are, so him we ought to serve, by doing all those things which he has commanded us. Three, that when we have done all, we are to look for our reward, not of debt, but of grace. Four, that were our service and obedience absolutely perfect, yet it could not merit anything at the hand of justice. When ye have done all, say, etc.